This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. For a free trial and 20% off, go to squarespace.com and use the offer code LEFT9. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, comedian Lee Camp, The Jimmy Dore Show, Grit TV with Laura Flanders, The Progressive Magazine, The David Packman Show, and The Rachel Maddow Show. And a quick note that, again, this episode isn't meant to be about racism necessarily, but I think I'm beginning to see a trend here. Now, the war in drugs has always been, to some degree, or perhaps to a larger degree, racist. Now, it was originally uh, aimed at people crossing the southern border from South America, Latin America, and specifically, of course, Mexico. Uh, and uh, that's why they started referring to the drug as marijuana and made it illegal in the first place. It used to be legal. And they also made opium illegal, uh, which in a way to target Chinese who had come over to work on the railroads and other projects, right? So now, of course, if you ask people, I think a lot of people in the country, and certainly almost everybody in Washington would say, oh, no, 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 like maybe in the past, but we're past race and we got a black president, we, so it has nothing to do with race whatsoever. Well, I'm going to give you those interesting stats on race in a little bit. But first, I want to tell you more broadly about the war on drugs, and this is all comes from new federal data. It was analyzed uh, by the New York Times and researchers at Stanford University for a new uh, report released by the American Civil Liberties Union. So, first of all, drug arrests in 2011. Half of them were on marijuana-related charges. Isn't that unbelievable? I mean, it's not heroin, it's not crack, it's not meth. Half of it is on marijuana. When you look at study after study, marijuana actually has a lot of positive health effects. Almost not, no negative consequences. No one has ever died from marijuana. We got millions of people in jail on marijuana charges. Insanity. Now, how about uh, President Obama? Remember he said he wouldn't mess with the states if they had legal medical marijuana when he was first coming into office? Wrong. 5% higher marijuana possession arrests under President Obama in his first three years. That's the, uh, the years that we have data for than under President George W. Bush. So he actually arrests people and conducts the war on drugs at a more feverish pace than President Bush. Now, is it working? No. In 2011, marijuana use grew by 7%. So what the hell is the point of the war on drugs if marijuana use is going up? How many years, how many decades are we going to do this stupid war on drugs when it never ever works? By the way, Portugal, when they went to go decriminalize drugs, drug use went dramatically down, not up. They're lying to you. If you legalize it or you decriminalize it, drug use will not go up. It goes up when we have a war on drugs. That never works. Now, how expensive is that? Well, in 2010, the states alone spent $3.6 billion enforcing marijuana possession laws. And that's actually a 30% increase from the year 2000. So we spend more money, we get worse results. And what happened, fiscal conservatives? I thought you hated spending taxpayer money. What are you wasting, throwing the garbage, $3.6 billion a year on a war that doesn't work at all? Now, the devastating race facts. Blacks and whites use marijuana at almost identical levels as a percentage of their own internal populations. So they use it as the same rate, blacks and whites. Now, uh, so then you would think, well, if it's not a racist war on drugs, well, they'll be arrested at similar rates, right? Now you see where this is going, right? The reality is, blacks in 2010 were arrested 
four times more than whites for marijuana possession. Same rate of usage, but arrested four times as much. Now you tell me that's not racist? Look, there's only two possibilities. Either the war on drugs is racist, or all throughout the country, the people enforcing the war on drugs are racist. There is no other answer. In fact, Ezekiel Edwards, who uh, was a criminal law reform project director who worked on this report, says, we found that in virtually every county in the country, police have wasted taxpayer money enforcing marijuana laws in a racially biased manner. Four times as much. Now you wonder why black people are angry about the war on drugs. You wonder why people call it the new Jim Crow. There's no question about it. The facts are overwhelming. Look what Jim Crow's done gone When changed his name Don't know what he's going by these days But still acting the same You can call it what you want to This is your moment of clarity from LeeCamp.net. We sentence drug dealers to go to jail because we're told drugs are harmful. And some are. Some are not, but some are. So we believe in sending people who sell harmful things to prison, right? Why have I never heard of a weapons contractor going to jail? Never have. Seems like the shit they're selling is way more deadly. And it doesn't even get you high. You don't even you don't even get to see God in your chicken pot pie before a drone attack. Seriously, drug dealers must think to themselves, I'm a hazard to the community, but that guy's selling surface-to-air missiles. Come on! I'm selling weed. That, that I, I've got dudes. That guy's got drones. My even helps dying people feel better. He creates dying people. There's a drug dealer in every town in America. Meanwhile, his wipes towns off the map. I mean, seriously, he's selling some bad <laughs> Arrest him, mother <laughs> It came out last week that the NYPD, over the past decade, has spent over a million hours arresting people for low-level marijuana possession. 440,000 arrests for 25 grams or less. People just trying to self-medicate themselves for a difficult illness called life. Life requires some medication. For most people, you know, it does. Otherwise, it, it, it flares up and stings like a bitch. Sometimes I use a life medication called whiskey. Other people use pot. For others, it's dressing up like the Power Rangers. And for still others, it's strangling themselves during sex. Why make people's life medication illegal? And the true effect of those nearly half a million arrests is basically just f***ing up people's lives. Sure, some of them were hardcore drug users or dealers, but probably 95% of them were just average people who happened to be standing around when the NYPD decided to fill their up someone's life quota. That's what it does. It just someone's life. They're going to have trouble getting a job. It's going to destroy the relationships. Perhaps they get in a fight while they're in prison and they end up in there even longer. Basically, the NYPD spent a million hours just making sure People's lives were f And then afterwards, if I were one of those people, I would need to smoke a bowl. Because God f messed up.
And then just a few days ago, a New York police officer testified in court that the department does indeed enforce an illegal quota system, making sure officers have a certain number of arrests or stop and frisks per month. And let's be honest, a disproportionate number of those frisks are done on black and Hispanic people. If you're a white woman, you'd have to be running down the block on fire while intentionally farting on elderly people to get arrested. But if you're a black man at the end of the month, holy shit, you shouldn't even go outside because there's a 75% chance of incarceration. Come to think of it, there should be a weather forecast for police activity so black and Hispanic people can turn on the TV and see if they should stay in tonight. As you can see on the map, in areas of Brooklyn and some parts of the Bronx, there should be a smattering of stop and frisk tonight with heavier bull possession arrest in the area later tonight. If you're a black man, we recommend you stay in, but if you must go out, you should bundle up in some sort of hipster clothing or something. Chance of arrest drops precipitously if you have on suspenders and a bowler cap, all right? In fact, new studies coming out of MIT show that the chance of arrest is inversely proportional to the circumference of your pant leg. Where's that at for the iPhone. Somebody get on it. We could call it the weather I'm going to get arrested for bull forecast app. For short, we could call it the weather forecast app. See what I did there? So there's a lot of morons going on television talking uh, disparagingly about marijuana as if it's the 1950s or something again. Huh. Well, to be fair, that and the jitterbug are going to make us all schizo. Yes, and jazz, <laughs> and if they show Elvis from the waist down. Uh, so are, that's what these guys sound like to me, right? So here is this guy. What's your, uh, hang on a sec. Are you going to let me do my entire rant on the Marijuana Tax Act? Uh, how long is it? I don't know, 45 yeah. minutes, an hour? Or something. Yeah. I don't know. You mean okay. the, the one with the machine... <laughs> The one that was based on the machine gun tax? What is this? Was it based on the machine gun tax? Yeah. I didn't know that. That's brilliant. So the Pat 1934. So here's yeah. Patrick Kennedy. Now, if you're not familiar with Patrick Kennedy, he's had a history of mental illness and drug addiction. So who better to come on and talk about uh, drug addiction and uh, marijuana than a guy who's been there himself? Uh, oh, I don't know. Maybe someone better would be somebody who knows what they're talking about. So this is Patrick Kennedy, and here's what he has to say. Reducing the um, kind of harm, perception of harm of marijuana, which is what's really out there now, thanks to all this movement towards legalization, that more people will use, Piers. He's, he's saying that uh, people are getting the perception that pot's not so bad with all this movement towards legalization, uh, which was spurred by the fact that pot isn't so bad for you. How old is this guy? Uh, I don't know. Patrick Kennedy. Look him up. I don't know. Uh, and where is he a representative from? Rhode Island. Rhode Island. I thought Rhode it was Island. Rhode Island. That's right, right, right. Uh, Rhode from Island. 1995 until 2011. Right. Uh, wow, and he's 45 years old. He sounds incredibly young. So he's, high voice. So he started. Female. 
So he started serving he in, female. So in like 28, when he was 28 years old. So here Reducing we go. the um, kind of harm, perception of harm of marijuana, which is what's really out there now, thanks to all this mm. movement towards legalization, that more people will use, peers. And if more people use, like I did when I was a teenager, nine out of ten addicts, which I became, started when they were teenagers. And Okay. He became nine out of ten addicts? He became nine out of... <laughs> So this whole thing is if we don't ban mar marijuana, people are, 9 out of 10 people are going to become at, I mean, what is the statistic? 9 out of 10 people are at, what is the, I don't even understand that statistic. Do you? Well, it's, no. I, I do, it's bullshit. Yes. That's oh, what that statistic is. That's what that statistic is, right? And by the way, not for nothing, uh, it is currently much easier to get pot as a high school student than it is to get beer. Yes. So... Yes. And what is he talking like? At, like nor legalizing and and regulating pot actually would be a boom for the very problem he's dis he's claiming yes. exists. Well, Here, here's a valid statistic though: one hundred percent of all sober uh, non-smokers die. <laughs> what? It's true. That's a great. So he's got a little bit more to say. Oh, started when they were teenagers, and no one can okay. argue today. Okay that this move will increase the the number of young people who will end up using this because they don't think it's any big deal um, because of this notion that it's medical. Well, I like how he says this notion that it's medical. Hey, have you ever talked to an AIDS patient who uses it at medically? It's not a notion. Until you ever, ever talk to a cancer patient who uses it medically? It's not a notion. Until the Marijuana Tax Act of 1934, it was the second most prescribed medicine in the country yes. following Marijuana aspirin. Was? Yes. yes, this really? notion. Yeah. Then it was, it was called cannabis by the, uh, the AMA, and it was called hemp by the, the textile industry, and it was called hashish when it was used recreationally by people of all classes. And then William Randolph Hearst yes. heard that someone had found a way to make paper out of it, and he had lumber holdings. So he started putting in his newspapers that it was marijuana. marijuana. No one had heard that. It sounded Mexican-ish and dangerous. Yes. And, he, and he, he planted stories about crazed Mexicans high on marijuana killing families of whites, correct? That's correct. And he said that it was coming across the border and causing white women to enjoy jazz music in the company of black men. Yes. But he still couldn't get it outlawed until someone came out up with a way to refine hemp's hemp seed oil into nylon right? into nylon and and fuel yes and that threatened the dupont holdings yes. so they uh went to the house ways and means committee sm snuck a bill through without any debate on the day that it came up the the ama showed up and said whoa, whoa, whoa you're talking about cannabis you can't outlaw that we use it all the time and they said too late you have to have told us that before uh, the the uh, uh, agriculture department came in and said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! You're talking about hemp. You can't. We, it's a cash crop. We can't. We can't outlaw that." Sorry, you should have filed these complaints two weeks ago. Uh, the the Ways and Means Committee, oh, old white guys, the the Ways and Moans Committee, put through the uh, <laughs> put through the Tax Act bill, and in the Library of Congress, in the Congressional Record, one of the reasons given is that it was causing Negroes to smile in public. <laughs> wow. Well, it does. It's, so, still, it's still doing that. So now we can't get high <laughs> after the show. Right. Because, you know, the two industries guys. that are most quickly destroying the planet right. could be harmed by this self-replenishing, oxygenating planet. And you get a moron like this guy Kennedy, right, this Patrick Kennedy, who is a moron. If you're going to come on television and speak about marijuana like it's the death of kids, you are a idiot. You are a moron. Okay, so here, here's another guy. I don't know who this guy is, 
But he's sitting next to Dr. Drew and across the table from Piers Morgan, and let's listen to what he has to say. <laughs> well, that's a credit, credential right there. Yeah, Alcohol has a long history of widespread accepted use in our culture, dating back to before the Old Testament. Marijuana is not, does not have that kind of widespread history. So I don't see why, just because alcohol is legal, marijuana will be. So that's him sidestepping the real issue about why. When people say, well, alcohol is, is legal, why shouldn't marijuana? He says. Alcohol has a long history of widespread accepted use in our culture. Dating yeah, so did slavery. Okay, so did, 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 that, 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 that is the worst argument for anything because that we've done it a long time. That is, again, the, when you don't have an argument, you make that one. Yeah, I, that is the argument that I make whenever anyone suggests that we try to figure out how man might fly. Right. We, have, we never flew. So why should we fly now? That can't happen. That can't, shouldn't it's be wrong. happening. It's also, wrong. by the way, you know, uh, the hemp plant has been used in everything since the dawn of time. I yeah. mean, the, the pharaohs wrote on, on hemp paper, on papyrus made from hemp. So wh where's this guy coming? The, he's wrong. The yeah, War he, of 1812 was fought over the availability of hemp. It was, it, we made our sails <laughs> and our rope out of it, and it was suddenly being, the, the supply was being uh, uh, threatened, and we went into a war over it. And do you know what, what that led to? No. Nobody knows anything about the War of 1812. <laughs> I didn't know this. Yeah, I saw a documentary it. on the War of 1812. Never they never mentioned it. They never mentioned it, Dylan. How did do you they, know about did it? Did they then? explain to you why you the War 18, of 1812 was fought? No. See, they just they glaze over they that. They just talk about the war. They talk about the theater, what yeah, happened. but never mentioned. They never talk about what really why. I yeah. always thought it was just because Madison was was kind of a pussy. They, I thought kind it was of. because that uh, the the America had gone into parts of Canada and killed people. And then so they saw this as a way to retaliate and... It was all about the it was about the availability of hemp and uh, ta tariffs on uh, imported textiles made from hemp. Okay, so here's another statistic. This guy sitting next to Dr. Drew across from Piers Morgan says, and uh, hold on to your whatever because it's going to fly off. This is actually about kids for people vulnerable for addiction. One in six kids who try pot will become addicted. One in six kids who will try pot will be kids. It's all about the kids, by the way, all of a sudden. That, and Again, it's all, but then why don't we make it illegal for kids? That, why do we have to make, like, just like alcohol, just like cigarettes, just like driving a car, yeah. we make it illegal for kids, I not for grown-ups. I believe one in five kids who drink every day after school <laughs> yes. will become alcoholics. Yes. And, by the way, that's a complete BS statistic. Completely. He, he, there's Completely. no way... There's no way they know that. And the reason why I know that is that's one of the things that they always say is like, well, we don't know enough. And let me tell you something, Robert. <clears throat> one of the least studied drugs is marijuana. Right. And that's the way they want it. Because right. every time they study it, they find out that it helps to cure cancer. Cure stuff. Yeah. It finds out it cures stuff. One they, in six. They so find they, out it's infinitely less harmful than tobacco or alcohol. Infinitely less. And it would bring in massive amounts of tax dollars. Yes. And... It would be fine. So here, it would, yes, it is fine. But it is fine. We've had we've had legal pot in California here's, for how many years now? And what's ha has crime gone up? No. Here's the thing. In fact, they did a Rand Corporation did a study, and they found out that crime near a medical marijuana clinic actually goes down when a medical marijuana clinic opens up. But boy, they the people outside of L.A. believe it. They but believe boy, they believe the BS that has been spun. Of course they but do. But I see a lot more like uh, Mexicans smiling on the street. <laughs> <laughs> so here, so, so they bring on this guy who used to be in the DEA. This uh, 
He's an African-American former DEA guy who's fought drugs his whole career. Now he's retired, and he's against the drug war, and it's illegal, making drugs illegal and trying to solve the problem that way. And he says this to Patrick Kennedy. You know, I'd be curious to find out how uh, Mr. Kennedy, how prison helped you beat addiction. Uh Okay, so, and then Patrick Kennedy, by the way, I had the clip, I lost it. He doesn't answer the question. Well, you know, that's a great, that's a great, really, first of all, I want to thank you for your service. He does one of those things. All right. First of all, I want to thank you for your service. Shut up. Here's the thing, and this is very important to, to keeping our society running the way it does. People who smoke pot and get stoned have no interest in going anywhere and killing anyone. Right. Right. And we cannot have an entire generation of young men who have no interest in going anywhere and killing anyone. What's the point if you ain't dying? Careful love. Careful love. What's the point with a love makes you ain't dying? I've been telling you guys about Squarespace recently. They're a platform for building websites, and I've told you about how the templates they have are built by award-winning designers, and they come up with new ones all the time, and that they have built-in commerce tools so you can get started selling your wares in just minutes. I've explained that Squarespace sites are incredibly easy to set up, but also end up looking very professional. I've said all this and more, and you probably believe me, but what you should really do is see for yourself. If you check out squarespace.com slash customers, You'll find examples of live websites run by current Squarespace customers, including some companies you might not expect. Target, HBO, Sony, and Cisco are just a few major companies that have used Squarespace to create websites, so check them out and see for yourself. If you already have a Squarespace website that you want to show off, then just write into the show and tell me about it for a chance to have it featured here in a future episode. In the meantime, if you want to see what kind of a site you can make with Squarespace, then you can try them out with a free trial to see how you like it, no credit card needed. Then, when you do sign up, you can use the special offer code LEFT9, that's L-E-F-T and the number 9, and that lets them know that you're supporting this show and for September only gets you 20% off your order. So if you pay for a full year of Squarespace, that's 20% off for the full year. Again, that offer code is LEFT9 to get 20% off when you create your own space at squarespace.com. What's the point if you Hi, I'm Laura Flanders. Well, our next guest is an investigative reporter just back from Afghanistan. She's also, it turns out, a social worker who works with addicts in Brooklyn. What is the social worker's take on the problem of drugs in Afghanistan? Well, it's a whole lot different than your average analysis. Helen Redmond is here with us in the studio. Helen, welcome to the program. Thanks for coming in. I didn't realize you were a social worker all this time. Yeah, I've been a social worker for over 10 years. I've been working with people who use drugs, um, all kinds of drugs. And uh, as you said, I was recently in Kabul to meet with people who work with drug users there. I mean, this has been your beat. You write about the drug war, you cover the drug war. What do you think you bring to it that others might not, given that you also see and work with people who are on the other side of it? Well, when you listen to drug users for as long as I have and you hear their stories, you have a real uh, understanding of why people use drugs, how they use drugs, and what, what they do for them. And I think that's really important because a lot of journalists who cover uh, the drug war and the drug scene, they don't really understand that. It's very sensationalistic. It's very 
there's a whole history in this country of, of drug panics and whipping up hatred against drug users, demonizing them, and I consciously set out not to do mm. that in my work. Now, George W. Bush sort of demonized Afghanistan uh, when he was trying to stir up enthusiasm for a pretty unpopular war in Afghanistan. Uh, he said that that was a, a source of, of narco-terrorism, that the Taliban mm -hmm. were using their ill-gotten gains from opium to fund terrorist attacks on the U.S. A, was it true? And B, um, what is the situation vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan and the global drug trade? Well, that's, it's, it's interesting that you say that because in all of the stuff that I read, they're always linking the Taliban with the opium trade and the, the heroin trade. And it's true that the Taliban get some of their funding from the opium, opium trade. Must be true. That's what George W. Bush said. Of course. <laughs> and the country produces over 90% of the world's heroin that goes into Central Asia and into Europe. But it's not just the Taliban. Actually, it's a, a small amount of the funding for the Taliban. The Karzai government is very well entrenched in the drug trade. They make money from it. They're part of it. They sanction it. The provincial governor. So anybody who can make money off of the trade is because really it's the one thing that the economy can always depend on mm. something like 30 percent of the economy the other parts of agriculture just can't support the country the way that that opium does so you go to Kabul and this was pretty recently had you ever been before no your first, first time. trip what struck you what did you see it was overwhelming in the sense that being a Westerner and knowing that my government has spent billions of dollars to bomb this country back to the Stone Ages and then about 57 billion, 58 billion to maybe reconstruct it, to see a city like Kabul really in ruins. Uh, they don't have much of a healthcare infrastructure. They don't have a transportation infrastructure. There's sewer out in the streets. There are people begging in the streets. And it's really humbling uh, to, to see that and knowing that if the money was used in the way it should have been that the standard of living could be much much higher and you wouldn't see the level of poverty and violence it's also a city that feels like a fortress I mean every few feet it seems like there are soldiers with AK-47s and barriers and walls everywhere and a heavy military presence security is not good uh, in Kabul in my, my opinion and so it feels like a city that is occupied by the U.S. military as well as Afghan soldiers. And the uh, drug situation? The drug situation in Kabul, uh, it's, it's, it shouldn't be surprising to people in a country that's had 30 years of war. War is trauma, and people seek to use substances to help live with trauma. The violence of daily life, poverty, uh, violence against women, violence against men and children. And there is a fairly large uh, injection drug um, using population in Kabul. There are open air drug scenes where people openly, um, they, they actually light uh, opium and they sniff the vapors and they also inject it. And there's a couple of places where they do this that's right out in the open that I saw. And it's people trying to cope under the most difficult circumstances. As in most countries, people who inject drugs are hated, demonized, criminalized. Uh, drug users are regularly beaten up by the police. Uh, the people that I met with said that the police kill people who use drugs, that citizens are encouraged to beat up people who use drugs, and they're imprisoned. Mm. So it's a desperate, desperate situation. But people are using these drugs to survive the most horrible living conditions that you can imagine. And what's the U.S. policy right now? They want to cont continue the drug war. We don't hear a lot about it right now. Uh, be we hear a lot about withdrawing troops, yeah. uh, 
but they're not leaving altogether, as we know. There's going to be nine bases spread around the country. The U.S. wants to continue to have a presence there. And they will use, when they find it convenient, narco-terrorism that we also have to stay in Afghanistan because they're growing all this poppy, they're exporting it. They haven't been saying it recently, but I believe they will use it, as they do in many other countries. So it could be the changing kind of description or face of the war from war on terror to war on narco-terror or war on drugs. Yes, and it's a pretext because the U.S. doesn't really care about people who use drugs or people who overdose and die from drugs. They're using it as a pretext to stay in the country. They don't really care about the people of Afghanistan. If they really did, they would have used the billions of dollars making war on the country to actually give people employment, housing, health care, and education. That just hasn't happened. And the drug money in terms of corruption, you talked about both the Taliban and Karzai being up to their necks in it. What's it's it done to government? It's really stunning. Um, you can't have prohibition without corruption. And so the level of corruption goes all the way up to Karzai, to his brother who was killed a few years ago, Ahmed Wali Karzai, in the southern part of the country to some of the highest uh, members of, of his cabinet have been found to be corrupted by this money. And it's not, I don't want to be unfair to Afghanistan. We see this here in the U.S., we see it in Mexico, we see it in every country, the corruption. You can't have prohibition without having a whole layer of people who are corrupted by the money because the profits are just fantastic. Mm -hmm. I mean, unlike any other uh, illegal substance, I think. So it has an effect on the government, it has an effect on the environment, it has an effect on the agriculture. Mm -hmm. But let's go back to the people again. Um, what's your vision for how this could possibly change? And is there the will to make that change? I can see it changing. I met with people who are working with drug users and using a public health approach, a harm reduction approach. So there are several organizations, NGOs, uh, who are going out and doing syringe exchange. There is a small methadone program that got off the ground a couple of years ago. There are 75, um, 77 people in the program, so they're getting methadone. And it's, there's a small group of people that are really fighting to have a drug policy that's based on human rights, compassion, and starting where people are at. I mean, uh, opiate addiction is really interesting in that it's very treatable with methadone and buprenorphine. So you can maintain people. You can even maintain them on heroin. In Switzerland, they have heroin prescriptions. So they can just maintain people on, on heroin. So in, in some ways, it's a good problem because there is a, an immediate solution. Mm -hmm. But in Afghanistan, as in other countries, there is, because of the criminalization, that stops a lot of potential harm reduction measures. But people are really, really trying to reach out to drug users and offer them services. Again, it comes down to money, and, and it's not sexy to fund drug users in Afghanistan, right? It's much more interesting, you know, maternal child health, educating girls, liberating women. Those are causes that people are really uh, feel affinity to, but drug users, mm, that's a little different. In terms of the criminal status, you, you talk about the damage that criminalization does, and we're seeing that play out in this country, too. Mm -hmm. um, here, we're beginning to see a burgeoning conversation about legalization of some drugs, marijuana mostly. Um, what about there? What's the, what do you prescribe um, for this economy, which is so hugely affected by um, 
what's now a criminal trial. Right. I'm, I'm for the legalization of all drugs in, in every country. And in, Afga in Afghanistan, um, opium, heroin, and marijuana and hashish, those are the drugs of choice for most people. There are some pharmaceuticals, but they don't have nearly the pharmaceuticals that we have in this country because they don't have a pharmaceutical industry there, not yet. And the best thing that could happen is if they could legalize and regulate all drugs. You start with legalizing marijuana and hashish and then move on to uh, legalizing heroin and regulating it so that people I'm, I'm not at all advocating you can just buy it anywhere, but it's actually regulated like we regulate alcohol and tobacco. Of course, they don't have alcohol in Afghanistan. It's forbidden, so that isn't an issue so much. But legalization, a public health approach, uh, and opening up treatment, that could solve the problem. And as well, uh, manufacturing uh, poppy into morphine because they have a, uh, a lack of pain medication in Afghanistan, which is pretty stunning when you think it's a country that produces over 90% of the world's heroin. Heroin is a painkiller. And uh, making factories to actually produce this. So rather than this entire eradication campaign, eradicating crops, license them. Exactly. And there's been proposals to do that, and there's been a lot of criticism of it. But we've had 30 years of a war on drugs in Afghanistan, and it seems like almost every year they produce more and more. So the war on drugs, the criminalization, the prohibition isn't working. Isn't it time to try something else? And I think legalizing, legalizing it makes total sense from the perspective of people like me and drug users. But again, the U.S. and the Afghan government to a certain extent, it's a way to criminalize and oppress people and keep them down. And that has to be confronted. It also sounds like a way to keep troops in place. What actually exactly. are U.S. forces doing there in this regard? Well, the DEA is there, uh, DEA agents. They work with the military and they go out and they try to eradicate uh, drug crops. They arrest people who are involved in the drug trade. There's been a, a couple of high-profile cases where um, alleged narco-traffickers have been extradited to the U.S., most of them to New York. Mm -hmm. And Haji Juma Khan is a, a perfect example of that. Um, Bashar Norzai is another person who is extradited here on narco-terrorism charges. It does nothing to end the drug trade. In, in, in Afghanistan, absolutely nothing. I mean, another person just takes their place. That's how the drug war, war w works. It has PR value. It gives the DEA a justification to keep doing what they're doing. Like, look how we're getting all these bad guys. In reality, they're not. Mm. Is there anything likely to change in the next few months? Is there anything we should be keeping an eye on? In the next few months? Well, the drawdown will continue. I think people in a way have forgotten about Afghanistan because they think they think the war is over and the media is losing interest as as the, the US is leaving so I think it's up to independent journalists to keep the spotlight on Afghanistan on what's happening in terms of drug use uh, women uh, the economy uh, it's going to be up to us to, to do that because I think the me mainstream media now is losing interest mm. in Afghanistan. When you came home to your clients in Brooklyn and said to them that you'd been in Kabul, um, what did they say? They were they knew I was going and they were in shock when I told them what what I saw because we don't have open air drug scenes in the United States. We have crack houses, but they are hidden places. And I described 
what it was like to walk down to the Pulisokta Bridge and see hundreds of men. You don't see women because women use drugs indoors. I mean, I'm sure you know, women aren't part of most public life, certainly not drug using because it's so stigmatized. And I was explaining that and they were, they were just blown away. Many of them have used drugs, but never, never in that way. They understand though why people use drugs. It's the same reasons in Afghanistan that there are here. It's physical and sexual violence, hopelessness, poverty, no sense that, that you have a, have a future. They use for the same reasons. It's all the same. The lower house in Uruguay is planning on legalizing marijuana. So uh, they are passing a bill that would uh, legalize uh, the sale, distribution, and production of marijuana. They've already decriminalized uh possession of marijuana, so they, they want to go even further, which is great news. Um, and it's expected to pass in the Senate, and the President is already in favor of uh, signing that legislation into law. So Uruguay might be the first country in the world to legalize marijuana. So now, this is great because uh, apparently the House was the biggest issue because they say, the, and they've already passed the bill. The Senate is definitely going to pass it, and the President's the guy who pushed it. So it's, it looks like unless something really weird happens, they're going to do it. And it's not just decriminalizing, which means, yeah, it's illegal, but we're not going to make it a criminal activity. We'll give you a civil fine, et cetera, as Portugal has done. Uh, but it's actually going to be legal. You can grow up to six plants yes. in, in, on your own. And, there's, and it's not like have at it, Hoss, go nuts, do whatever you want. There's strict rules on how you grow it or distribute it or sell it. And in fact, you have to do it through government pharmacies. Yeah. Let me give you uh, the details via Think Progress. They did a good job covering the, this. They said the proposal would allow licensed sellers, distributors, and even individual growers of marijuana. Users could access marijuana in one of three ways. They could grow up to six plants on their own with a license, join a licensed growing cooperative with up to 45 members, or obtain it from a licensed pharmacy. So what's really interesting is, okay, there are private growers, but you don't buy the marijuana from a private company. You have to buy it from the government, which I like. You have to buy it from licensed pharmacies, which I like. And these are all like state-owned, so it's not like private companies can make money off of this. In the U.S., it's a little different uh, with medicinal marijuana. So can I just do a quick ode to Uruguay President uh, Jose Mujica? Uh, he's by far my favorite president in the world. Uh, he's the guy that gives away 90% of his uh, salary uh, back to the people. And it's not because he's rich. He's not rich at all. He lives on a small farm. He's got like a, I think like a Volkswagen Beetle or something that he, that he drives around. Uh, and he didn't have any, he wasn't part of the power establishment. Apparently, democracy is broken out in Uruguay, which is amazing, right? And in this case, he says, look, I'm an old man. I've never smoked marijuana. He's like, but I understand what young people are doing. And more important than that, I understand that for every 10 lives uh, drug addiction costs, we lose 100 lives from the gangsters who are running the drug wars. And my aim is, yes, to make it cheaper so that we don't have a black market that kills all these people. And, and, and of course, we know through Portugal's experience in decriminalizing that the addiction rates do not go up. They actually go down 
when you decriminalize. Yeah, but I mean, this is the most but, obvious thing in the world. But the right. example from the, I mean, look at the United States in the 20s and 30s. I mean, prohibition worked. <laughs> so I'm sorry I didn't think about that. That's a good point. Right? I mean, it worked. All it did was create a mafia and an underground of crime uh, that still lives today. So what's the problem? <laughs> and, and in fact, finally, people are waking up to that. So, and he's not alone here. Uh, Guatemalan President uh, Odo Perez Molina uh, has also outright endorsed legalization. Uh, they haven't gone there yet, but he wants them to. Of course, former uh, Mexican President Vicente Fox says legalize it. Former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan says legalize it. Uh, it's an enormous movement, and and there's now about three or four Latin American countries that are working on decriminalization or legalization, and it's only a matter of time before people yeah. go, okay, look, we've seen the evidence. The addiction rates do not go up, and we got to get rid of the gangsters. So uh, there's like an international commission right now that's fighting to end the war on drugs, which I'm very happy about because, as you guys know, a lot of former politicians are involved in this movement. But at the same time, these are the same politicians that helped fuel the war on drugs when they were in power. So that really irritates me. And I know that there are politicians out there right now that believe in, the, uh, in ending prohibition, but they won't speak out. They won't do anything about it. And I want them to grow some balls and do something <laughs> while they're in power. Because this international commission is all fine and dandy. I love the work that they're doing. But it's not as effective when they're not in power, when they don't have any political power. So you're saying you want them to grow little nuggets of courage. <laughs> Exactly. So yeah. I'll, I'll say this. Uh, why don't they just, why don't, I don't know if they've ever thought of this, why don't they just take all the drug dealers, the people making the money off it, and why don't they put them in prison? <laughs> oh, right, right. Why didn't they think of that? Uh, I think that they've been trying, Jimmy. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. and I'm not sure they've had great success. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Hooray for Eric Holder. The Attorney General of the United States all but announced the end of the drug war today. He acknowledged that mandatory minimum sentences were having a disastrous effect, incarcerating hundreds of thousands of people for low-level nonviolent crimes and wasting a ton of our money in the process. Said Holder, these sentences don't serve public safety, they have a disabling effect on communities, and they're ultimately counterproductive. He said it was wrong to give these people excessive prison terms more appropriate for violent criminals or drug kingpins. Not only did Holder repudiate that ridiculous policy, he instructed every federal prosecutor to omit mentioning the amount of drugs that a small nonviolent drug offender with no big rap sheet was in possession of. This is a way to get around the mandatory minimum sentencing, and while it's not as good as overturning the law, it's one of the most effective side steps that the attorney general could have taken. He also emphasized that some of these drug offenders would be sent to drug treatment programs rather than to prison, which is another good thing. Said Holder, 
we need to ensure that incarceration is used to punish, deter, and rehabilitate, not merely to convict, warehouse, and forget. This change in enforcement policy at the Justice Department is a welcome relief, and it's a bold and courageous move by Holder, for which he deserves our thanks. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. One of the main problems with the drug war that we have in this country, which we've identified, are mandatory minimum sentences, which end up filling already overcrowded prisons with nonviolent drug offenders simply based on statutes that mandate certain minimum sentences. There's some good news along this front, which is that federal prosecutors are no longer going to be seeking very long mandatory minimum sentences for a lot of low-level nonviolent drug offenders. And this is actually a pretty big shift in policy if it ends up happening and if it is followed through in the way that it is now being described. Eric Holder said, too many Americans go to too many prisons for far too long and for no good law enforcement reason. While the aggressive enforcement of federal criminal statutes remains necessary, we cannot simply prosecute or incarcerate our way to becoming a safer nation. Absolutely spot on. Is it just PR or will it actually happen? We don't yet know. The new policy, instead of sending a lot of these low-level nonviolent offenders, drug offenders, to prison, it would send them to drug treatment or community service. And when we talk, Lewis, about rehabilitation or lack of rehabilitation uh, being possible, we talked about Ariel Castro, for example. And, and the idea that someone who commits such a heinous crime at his age, there's really no opportunity for real rehabilitation. Low-level drug offenders are absolutely the types of, of individuals who do not belong in prisons, and we really should just be supporting them so that they can stop allowing drugs to impede their lives and, and full stop. That's it. There's no and. Just They should not be filling up overcrowded prisons. Not only is it, is it a fiscal issue, it's, it's a moral issue. A lot of the time, prison uh, ends up turning these people into, into crim- a level of criminal that, that they were not before they right. went into prison. No question about it. You go in as a low-level drug offender who was, who was just involved with you know, marijuana, which shouldn't even be, be uh, illegal. All of a sudden, you are uh, in a situation where you have to do certain things to maintain your dignity to simply survive, depending on the prison you're in. You start being in contact with actual violent criminals. All of a sudden, you get out of prison. You've been away for a couple of years or maybe even longer. You, you're, you're in a very difficult position. And now you're even more likely to turn, turn to the actual violent crime that never would have even crossed your mind yeah. when you were just involved with small amounts of marijuana. It just makes no sense. And a bigger problem here is the, the prison system more broadly, right? Private prison ownership disaster. The fact that a lot of Wall Street banks own significant shares of some of the private prison companies 
another disaster given how much power Wall Street holds. And it's all fed by the drug war. The drug war, in part, keeps the prison industrial complex going. That's why, that, that's why you're hearing some skepticism from me that this is really going to be a change. I hope it is. And we're going to follow it. And, and you know, we've been talking about prisons and we will continue to talk about prisons. So, who's that protector now? Then the governments of all lands and kowtow bow down to the ground at the feet of business. Tell me, political prisoners. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restrictions. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. But we begin tonight with a change in paradigm, a sea change on a huge issue that for decades nobody thought could ever happen. Uh, today, the Justice Department announced a change in American policy, a U-turn on something that had been going the other direction, full speed ahead for decades, for as long as I have been alive. And now today, it has turned. And this kind of thing has been happening a lot recently, a lot at least during this presidency. During the last presidency, in 2004, when George W. Bush was running for re-election, you might remember that one of the ways the Republicans tried to kind of game the system for that election, particularly in states where they thought things were going to be close, was that they made sure that in those states, Republicans pushed ballot measures for that fall's election that were anti-gay rights. They calculated that anti-gay marriage sentiment was so strong that it would drive conservative voters to the polls in really high numbers, and while the con those conservative voters were there at the polls to vote against the gay, uh, those voters, of course, could also be reliably counted on to vote for George W. Bush as well. There were 11 anti-gay ballot measures sharing the ballot with George W. Bush that year in 11 states. And the anti-gay side won in every single one of those states. And George W. Bush won as well in nine of those 11 states. And of course, he won the presidency. In that election, and for years before and after, every single time that marriage rights for same-sex couples got a statewide vote in this country, uh, it lost. More than 30 times all across the country, every single time there was a statewide vote, it was a loss. It felt like that was just forever, just an intractable, permanent, count-on-it, reliable American prejudice. You could plan other elections around how reliably you could count on gay people being denied equal rights at the polls. And it wasn't just Republicans. Democrats were terrible on the issue as well. The two great legislative legacies of the Democratic president before George W. Bush were Don't Ask, Don't Tell, ah, and the Defense of Marriage Act. Yeah, thanks for nothing, Bill Clinton. At the highest levels of American politics, gay rights were toxic, and basically everybody was terrible on the issue, and it just seemed like it was never going to change. That was not that long ago. But now, that has very much changed. Not only do equal rights now win when they get statewide votes, but the campaign manager for that Bush re-election effort in 2004, the re-election effort which used that national anti-gay ballot measure strategy, 
that campaign manager has himself now come out as gay and apologized and is spending his time now working to flip more states and just supporting equal rights. Steve Schmidt, who is a key strategist for that exploitatively anti-gay George W. Bush re-election effort in 2004, he now works for the ACLU nationally as a pro-gay marriage Republican organizer. Now, in 2013, Bill Clinton's Defense of Marriage Act is gone. You have to check your watch to see how many states are recognizing equal marriage because the number is increasing seemingly every day. And then today, this afternoon, the Internal Revenue Service just made this announcement, which not long ago would have been absolutely unimaginable. But look what they put out today. Look at this. IRS announces that all legal same-sex marriages will be recognized for federal tax purposes. Ruling provides certainty, benefits, and protections under federal tax law for same-sex couples. Married gay couples can file joint federal tax returns. So says the IRS, officially. Who ever thought this day would come? I mean, I guess if you're 10 years old and you don't remember what it was like to see the President of the United States crowing about how he would make sure gay people were always discriminated against and that's why you should vote for him, maybe if you were 10 years old or younger and you never saw that as a sentient being, then maybe you knew for sure that this day was coming. But otherwise, it is hard to look at this from the IRS today and believe that this is true. But that's true as of today. And you know, it is also true that it felt forever like the prison population in this country was going to keep going up and up and up and up and up forever. Until all of a sudden it started to drop. Three years in a row now that it has dropped after something like 30 years of it rising inexorably before that. Same goes for the number of Americans who are uninsured, who don't have health insurance. That number rose intractably year after year, always getting worse and then worse and then even worse still. Until... All of a sudden, it started to get better. It turned around once health reform passed. And the number of uninsured people in this country is expected to make its largest drop ever next year once the health exchanges are up and running. Talking Points Memo today posted the new ads from a bunch of different states showing how people in various states are about to start learning about the health exchange where they live, where you can go online and choose better, cheaper health insurance than you might have been able to get now. That hasn't even rolled out yet, but we've already turned the corner. We've already turned the corner on something that seemed like it was on a track without corners. In, in politics, just in our citizenship, there are a handful of what seemed like forever problems. Things that were always getting worse. Downward trends that we lived with for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Things that only ever seemed to get worse that have now stopped getting worse and are getting better. I'm not talking about things that fluctuate up and down all the time. I'm talking about things that were like this forever, and now all of a sudden they've turned. And of course it's not true of everything. It's not true of a lot of very big things. But it is true of some things. And today, we got another one. We got a big one. When Richard Nixon declared the start of the drug war in 1971, it is clear from contemporaneous reporting that he thought he was declaring a war that he could win he thought that with a sufficient show of federal force and presidential leadership, this whole drugs thing could be kicked. He could win a war on drugs, and everybody would love him for it, and nobody would use drugs anymore. What he was actually doing, though, was signing up not only what was left of his own administration, but every American president to come after him for a constant Sisyphusian struggle against something that never got better, something that only was made worse by them fighting it. Jimmy Carter tried to undo some of it in the 1970s, but Reagan ramped it up to a higher pitch than ever when he took over. The 1980s saw all those mandatory minimum sentencing laws passed and the three strikes laws. 
1989, Poppy Bush, George H.W. Bush, re-declared the war on drugs, and the arrest numbers related to pot just shot through the roof. All the policy changes just went in the same direction. More draconian laws, more enforcement, more people arrested, more people in jail, longer sentences. And again, at the highest levels, Democrats were not much help. President Bill Clinton was advised by the U.S. Sentencing Commission that there was no reason for there to be these hugely increased penalties for the crack kind of cocaine as compared to the powdered kind of cocaine. But he rejected that recommendation and decided to keep the draconian sentencing in place for crack. Now, of course, over all of these years, and all of these presidents, and all of these re-declarations of war, there's been no real effect on American drug use. There's just been a vast expansion of the criminal justice system. The criminal justice system at its least effective and most intrusive. And it has never seemed like it would ever get any better. If you are 40 years old, say, then your life has spanned the drug war. All of your teenage years, your 20s, your 30s have all been about the drug war, not only existing, but ramping up and up and up with no end in sight, no matter who is in charge. Except now, it is finally changing. At least some of it is changing. That sentencing disparity between crack cocaine and powdered cocaine that President Clinton did not see fit to act on, despite the expert opinion from the Sentencing Commission, President Clinton didn't see fit to act on that, but under President Obama, that change passed through Congress and was signed into law. President Obama signed the bill to fix that disparity with his Attorney General, Eric Holder, looking on as he signed it. Then just two weeks ago, Attorney General Eric Holder issued dramatically new directions for federal prosecutors, telling them essentially to stop charging people for most drug offenses in a way that would trigger those mandatory minimum sentences. A huge reversal, that's a huge reversal after 30 years of the laws and the guidelines always clamping down in the opposite direction. And then today, the biggest change yet. In November, Colorado and Washington State both passed ballot measures legalizing pot in small quantities for recreational use. Lots of states have legalized the use of marijuana for medical purposes, but in, in the last few years, more than a dozen states have done that. But in Colorado and Washington, voters said the police should not care why you are using pot. If you are using pot to get intoxicated, you're using it to get high, that should not be illegal in small amounts for personal use. Pot should instead just be regulated in much the same way that alcohol is. And that is fine as far as state law goes. It was a pretty definitive vote in both Colorado and Washington state. What was awkward, though, and what was legally confrontational about those changes in those two states is that even if Colorado and Washington wanted pot to be legal under state law, marijuana is still a controlled substance, illegal under the Federal Controlled Substances Act. See, it's right there. Number 10, spelled with an H, marijuana, <laughs> before mescaline and after LSD. That is federal law. How can something be legal in two American states, but illegal in America. How can something be legal in two states, but illegal in the whole country? Is the federal government going to let Colorado and Washington do this? The Attorney General for the state of Washington had said recently that he was girding for the federal government to sue him, to sue the state of Washington and the state of Colorado as well, presumably, to overturn those state laws legalizing pot, thus rendering pot illegal nationwide, full stop. That is pretty much what everybody was expecting. Well, today, the Justice Department said they are not going to do that. In a letter to all federal prosecutors, the Attorney General's office says that Colorado and Washington effectively can move ahead with decriminalizing pot for personal use in those states. 
The Justice Department says that states need to abide by some law enforcement priorities in terms of the way they regulate pot, things like keeping it away from kids and preventing interstate traffic and preventing drugged driving and some other stuff. But the headline here is that Colorado and Washington can go ahead and legalize pot for personal recreational use with the federal government's blessing. There will be no federal challenge to pot legalization in two states. This is a big deal in one day's news. But in the context of a lifetime's worth of the futile, ever more aggressive war on drugs, what the administration just did today feels unimaginable. It feels like cats chasing dogs. It feels like pigs flying. It feels like the Harlem Globetrotters losing. And it happened. It's done. Adjust your expectations for what is within the realm of the possible in our country. Good morning, Jay. This is uh, Professor Rambo from Georgia. I just want to say um, I totally agree with you on your episode about um, exposing the paradigm of economic oppression. Um, I think as a black male, I think far too many of our leaders just think racism is saying, you know, somebody unjustly profiling another man or say somebody, you know, using the N-word, i.e. Paula Dean, i.e. You know, George Zimmerman. But far too many of us are just, you know, oppressed economically-wise with, you know, not being accepted into certain colleges, not being accepted for jobs, you know, stuff like that. And I think in the long term, holding somebody down without money hurts far worse to hold somebody down with a stereotype or with a, with a name or with a label. So I just hope more of our quote-unquote black leaders can get hit to that and, you know, and we might see some kind of progress in this post-racial America. <laughs> Hope you can sense the sarcasm out. But uh, have a great day. Love the show. Hi, my name is Jeff. I'm calling from Cleveland, Ohio. And I'm calling you in, res- in, in response to, uh, I left you an email, in response to the fast food worker strike. And you mentioned you don't have a lot of African-Americans to comments. Well, I'm an African-American. I've worked in fast food. I'm currently a business owner. I don't work in fast food right now. However, I understand the point that some of the larger corporations such as McDonald's, Burger King, and some of the other larger fast food chains, they can pay $15 per hour. But if you look at some of the smaller fast food restaurants, such as so-and-so Joe's Taco Shack or um, another small independent fast food restaurant, a lot of the people who own those might not even be making $15 an hour. So we have to be careful how we make it seem like it should be a blanket rule that all fast food restaurants should be paying this amount. Because what would happen is that if they force people to pay high wages, the McDonald's and Burger Kings and all the other larger corporations will survive, whereas the smaller, more independent startups, they struggle. And that's just what I, that's just my point that I wanted to share with you. The other point that I wanted to share with you is that 
Just because somebody has an education and does not grant them more money. So forever, fast food workers were making the minimum wage. Now you have adults with families, and some of them have more education. And just because they have families and more education doesn't mean they deserve more money. Right? I don't think that's a fair move. That's just my point. Thank you. Hey, Jay, this is Kat Lehman calling from Berlin, Germany. been listening to the show for quite a while now, and I'm first response now to the call for action that more women call in. I was about to say it in German, sorry. Um, I have had tons and tons of comments I wanted to make and hadn't really come up with the best time or response to make one. Um, So I thought I would just mention that last Saturday I was at a demonstration here in Berlin in support of actually against Putin's homophobic laws, and it was fantastic to see so many people out on the street. I actually ended up meeting another um, another woman there who we are, we are both actually heterosexuals married with children, and we were there showing a solidarity for, for our friends and everyone else, and I thought it was fantastic to find so many people in that situation as well. You know, I think of the GLBT issues aren't just for them, it's for all of us to be more accepting, to be more open, and to want to support everybody. So I just thought I'd mention that. It was fantastic. I think we got to about 4,000 people, and we were on our way to the Russian embassy. Anyway, so I'm your German listener. As you can hear, I'm actually a German, so originally from the States. Keep up the good work and hope to become a member soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who help gather clips to make the show possible, and thanks to all those who call into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or to relate your firsthand experience from a political event you've attended to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So first of all, today, just a quick update. About a week ago, I put forward the challenge saying that if we could get 20 new members to support the show uh, within two weeks, then I would promise to do daily dispatches from the climate ride. And so that's coming up a week from now. The update is we're up to 15 new members. Uh, of course, there have been some cancellations, but I, I won't penalize everyone. So a uh, huge thanks to the 15 of you who have signed up or, or upgraded your memberships. Of course, that's usually uh, helpful <laughs> in the face of people canceling in the meantime. And so, of course, that leaves us a, a full week to only get five more memberships. And then I'll be doing uh, dispatches for the members in the members only bonus feed. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to do it. I'm sure it'll be fun for everyone. Secondly, today, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're beginning to see a trend. And by beginning, I mean, for several decades now, we've been able to clearly see the relationship between sort of general racism and the effects that racism has on other political issues, such as immigration policy uh, that I was talking about before. Today was drug policy and the drug war. And so to, to sort of continue that conversation, I'm excited to announce I have another analogy. I know people love my analogies. Uh, one person wrote in at least to say that they liked my last one. So uh, what the heck? Let's, let's go for another. So, so this analogy was actually inspired by our resident conservative Wade from uh, Fort Worth, Texas, who calls in and is not – you know, a crazy conservative who you can't talk to. He's a reasonable person who disagrees. And, um, and, and we often have uh, interesting conversations with him Uh, on the issue of race. uh, You know, he called in talking about the George Zimmerman trial and 
you know, there were distinct differences in our perceptions about race. And, and so he said something that I'll get to in a moment that inspired this analogy. So here, here's what I came up with. I began to think of privileged people and, and that could be any privilege. I'm, I'm talking about race today, but you know, it could be gender or sexual orientation privilege or, you know, any of those. And so I began to think of privileged people's sort of place in society as represented by a bank account and not necessarily for the obvious reasons, just a purely metaphorical bank account. And so the average person, the way they have a bank account is they do work, they earn money, and they put it in the bank, and that's how the money gets there. It's really simple. But the way privilege comes in, it's like a bank error. All of a sudden, there's more money in your account than you earned, but by no fault of your own. It's a bank error. So obviously, there's no shame in finding a bank error. There's no shame in forfeiting the money that was erroneously put in your account. In fact, that would be the honorable thing to do, to say, whoa, 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 like, this isn't fair. This money is in my account, but I didn't earn it. That The honorable thing to do would be to notify those in charge and say, this needs to be fixed. So what's going to happen normally if a bank recognizes its error is it's going to get in touch with you and let you know about the error that has occurred. And so now we get to the point where I, I let you know how Wade inspired this whole analogy. So in talking about uh, you know the Zimmerman trial and whatnot, uh, Wade reacted to the idea of us having a conversation about race in America. We want to have a discussion on race. A discussion on race? You want a white guy to have a discussion on race? What do you want? A, 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 a discussion on race. White versus black. Right. I don't see that working out too well for us white guys. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Mr. Bank Manager. You want to have a conversation with me about this money, which is in my account, but which I did not personally deposit? I don't know. That that doesn't sound like that conversation is going to work out too well for me. My guess, if I had to guess, is that you want to talk to me about it because you want to take that money back. I mean, hey, if, if your bank made a mistake and put money in my account, I'd really rather keep that myself. I mean, I'm not saying it's technically mine because I didn't earn it, but now that I have it, why don't I just hang on to that? You see how you don't want to be that guy and how if you were that guy and you had any sense of morality whatsoever that you would then feel guilty for that? You would know, deep down, you would know you didn't really earn that, but you're not willing to give it back or even acknowledge that you didn't earn it. And something that I've seen happen over and over again is people responding to this show who fundamentally misunderstand the conversation on race or privilege in general – think that people like me are telling everyone else that if you are white and privileged or male and privileged or straight and privileged that you need to feel guilty for that because there are other people whose lives are harder or worse off than yours simply because of who they are compared to who you are and that could not be further from the truth. I sleep soundly, contented, and guilt-free because when I recognize that there's been a bank error in my favor— I constantly try to acknowledge the error and correct it when possible. Now, th this analogy is horribly flawed because unlike a bank error, we can't just, you know, reverse the charge and, you know, reverse racism or, you know, all the varieties of, uh, you know, privilege and oppression out there. We can't just easily reverse those. But as individuals, what we can do at a, at a very minimum is to acknowledge it. And so, 
you know, when it comes to having a, a, you know, discussion on race, as Wade was referring to, and how that conversation wouldn't work out too well for white guys, well, all it would do is correct the bank error. It doesn't take anything away from what you've earned. It would only take away what you didn't earn. And for any morally righteous person, that is exactly what you should want to have happen. Let me know your thoughts. That number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That's how the program survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder why we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories and Forget how to listen We can't see past